Well, again, it's great to be here with all of you. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 6. Um, so if you have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, why don't you uh, turn there with me now. Uh, and as you're doing that, uh, let me briefly uh, remind us of where we've been and where we are uh, as of today. Uh, we know that this story, the story of Esther, takes place uh, during the Persian Empire, uh, largely in the ancient uh, city of Susa, uh, which is modern-day Iran. Okay, if you're looking at a map, find Iran. This is, le- this is where this story is taking place. Uh, you see, we know that God's Old Testament people um, had found themselves in Persia uh, due to a forced exile. That was the Babylonian uh, captivity. And as Esther opens, uh, the Jewish people have been in captivity, living in Persia for a little over 100 years. Um, It's a really dark uh, situation. Uh, They're in a foreign land. Uh, They have nothing of their own. And and worst of all, amidst um, all of their trials, all of their, uh, their troubles, their uncertain future, God seems silent. He seems absent from them. Well, we see uh, a little later on uh, that things go from bad to worse because we read in chapter 3 that Haman, uh, who's sort of the the prime minister of Persia, issues an order for the genocide of all of the Jews who are living in the empire. Every man, every woman, every child uh, will be annihilated. And it just so happens... There's tension in this story. It just so happens that Esther, uh, the queen of Persia, is Jewish. Um, although no one knows it, right? No one knows it because up until this point, she has kept her identity hidden. It's been a, a secret. Well, uh, some more time goes by, and chapter 4 uh, brings us into the major crossroad of this whole story. Um, It's there where Esther needs to choose. Uh, Is she going to keep herself safe? Is she going to keep herself hidden? Or is she going to go to her husband, go to the king, and risk revealing her identity? And so what does she choose? Well, after three days of praying, three days of fasting, um, in faith... She chooses to follow God and risk her life by going to the king. Uh, She's put together a plan uh, in an attempt to save her people. And in that, we saw last week in chapter 5, that she goes to the king, right? And in God's grace, or by God's grace, uh, she is shown mercy. She lives. And so with that, we start to see her, her plan unfold. She starts by inviting King Ahasuerus, her husband, and Haman, that prime minister, uh, to a feast, to a dinner. That finishes, like they have some wine, and then at the end of that feast, she invites them to another feast that is going to take place the next day. But here's what's really interesting. Uh, The night after the first feast, we also learn that Haman makes his own plan a plan to murder Mordecai, a man named Mordecai, who was Esther's cousin and adoptive father, a plan to murder him uh, the next morning, to hang him high up on display to show uh, who is worthy of honor and and glory. 
So now we open up chapter 6, which um, I think we're going to see um, is really a, an ironic chapter. It's considered by many the most ironic uh, text in all of the scriptures, actually. Yet at the same time, uh, what we'll also see is that this chapter shouts to us the providence of God. Uh, the reality that he, God, is truly above and over all things. And why does knowing that even matter? Why does God's providence even matter? Well, simply put, we know that this truth, knowing this truth, gives us meaning. It gives life purpose. Uh, you know, we, uh, we've all had that friend. Maybe we've done this as well. Um, we've heard people say things like this. Well, uh, everything will work out for the best. Have you heard that before? Or uh, how about this one? Knock on wood, right? Something's going wrong. I know, knock on wood. Or how about this one? I like this one. Hey, everything happens for a reason. You've heard that one, right? And people say things like this as if uh, the universe has some kind of plan, right? That the universe itself has this design and plan. If I, oh, if I just you know, do the right things or take the right steps, right, I'm going to be okay. Uh, but listen, if there is no God, if there's no God in your worldview, if there's no God in your framework, then there is nothing guiding your life. There is no good. There is no evil. There is no design. There is no purpose. And, and look, without God, there is actually, there's no hope of a better story because there is no ultimate story. There is no grand story. See, without a creator, without a God, uh, there is just a cold and meaningless, blind universe. That's where we live. And, and therefore, there is no real comfort as we walk through all the ups and the downs and all the chaos and confusion of this world. Right? No amount of uh, crossing your fingers. Right? No amount of wood that you're knocking on can help you. Uh, but the Bible offers us meaning. It offers us purpose. Uh, we're going to see today that God's providence offers us hope. We're going to see that unfold here before us today in Esther chapter 6. And so, similar to past weeks, I'm going to walk us through this passage, give you some commentary on the text, and then we'll end with what I hope, I hope is some helpful application. All right? Sounds good? All right. So chapter 6, verse 1. Right? Chapter 6 of Esther, verse 1. God's word says this. We're going to get really far. Here we go. On that night, the king could not sleep. We'll stop. On that night, the king could not sleep. All right, we'll pause there uh, for a minute. Later on, uh, you'll see why we're going to pause here. Your mind is going to be blown. All right, but I'll save that to later and make you pay attention. So what night is this? On that night, the king couldn't sleep. What night is this? Because understanding the timing of the events here is really so crucial to, to seeing the, the epic nature of this chapter. So here's what we know. that This is the night after that first meal, after that first feast that, Easter, uh, that Esther had shared with Haman and the king. It's the night before, right before the second feast that was planned to happen the next day. Right? And we're going to talk about that, uh, that feast when we get to chapter 7. Now, we're not told here 
it's interesting. We're not told here why the king couldn't sleep. Right? Maybe um, he's wondering, he's curious, he's just too anxious about what Esther was going to ask him. Like, what could it be? Why, why, what kind of question does my wife want to ask me? Or maybe, right, it was just bad indigestion. Right? Like, too much food, too much wine, we don't know. But here's what happens. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, as they're called, and they were read before the king. And so what do you do in the ancient Near East when you don't have YouTube, Netflix, and Disney Plus? Right? Here's what you do. You call for the governmental records to be read to you. Right? Sounds like a lot of fun, right? Uh, he asks, it's crazy, he asks for the chronicles, okay, the chronicles, which is an official record, we know this, okay, we have other records outside the Bible of this, it was the official record of Persian kings, it had all these facts in terms of land and taxes and battles won and battles lost, but very important to our story, it also included an official list of all those who had been awarded by the kingdom for their loyalty to the king. Okay? It listed their deed, their name, and what was their reward. Okay? Just these lists. This is what he's, is being read to him. Then verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You remember that story is recorded in Esther chapter 2, right? You can go back and read that or listen to that sermon. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing. Nothing has been done for him. So we have to understand, this was actually a glaring oversight. Things like this just didn't happen, which is why the king calls it out. Hey, what's been done to this guy? It's not recorded. And they're like, oh, you can tell there's a little bit of nerves here. Uh, Nothing's been been done. This is is not good. And, And we are meant to know that, by the way, that this is the standard protocol of things. Um, We know that this good deed by Mordecai happened five years, five years before this night. And yet it has gone unnoticed and unrewarded up to this point. And so the king is now working through this issue. He's figuring out what are we going to do by this. And interestingly enough, at the very same time, another issue was being sorted right outside of the palace. See, a gallows, a a structure, a place where people were hung, was being built that very same night for killing Mordecai. And all Haman needed to to, to hang uh, Mordecai was the king's final stamp, his final approval to make it happen. And so... As the king is having this sleepless night and figuring this out, and what are we going to do with Mordecai? Haman shows up. He shows up to the king's palace to share his plan. At the same time, the king discovers that Mordecai needs to be rewarded. So, look how this plays out. Verse 4. 
And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Let him come in. Now, uh, you can imagine, you can imagine Haman's excitement here, right? He's got to be thrilled. The, the king invites him in, right? Everything seems to be going his way, according to his plan. So here's what happens. So Haman came in, and, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king, to himself, not out loud, says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, if you know Haman, you follow this story, you know, right? Haman must be thinking, this is even better than I expected. It's perfect, right? All I do is win, 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 no matter what. All right? Some of you. <laughs> so this is, this is funny, really, right? He, he pushes pause on Mordecai's plan. And he decides to indulge himself before the king. Look at this. It's amazing. Verse 7. And Haman said to the king. Remember, he thinks the king is talking about him. He says this. For the man whom the king delights to honor. Wink, wink. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden. And on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city. Proclaiming before him the city, the capital city of Susa. Thus shall it be done to the man. Whom the king delights to honor. Now, what's funny about this to me, the irony, right? There's just, it's filled with irony. But Haman has obviously, clearly, he has been thinking about this long and hard, right? I mean, the king just asked him a simple question like, hey, what, what kind of reward should be done for an honored person? And he is thoroughly prepared to answer. Right? And we see here, so we see his, his pride and desire to be treated like a king on display. His arrogance. Right? In his mind, right, this, is his, this is his dream scenario. This is actually his dream day. Think about this. For him, right, his hated rival Mordecai, the one who wouldn't bow down to him, is going to be killed. Not only that, he's on the VIP list. Not just with the king, but also with the queen, eating all the king's choice food. Whatever his heart desires is his. And now he's going to be treated as if he were the king in front of the whole capital city. Right? This would be like, I tried to think about this. It would be like getting the, the, the presidential medal of freedom, flying on Air Force One, and getting the honored seat at the State of the Union Address all at the same day. If you have no idea what I just said, it's, it's really good. 
okay? A lot of good stuff at the same time, okay? So he is, he's riding high here. He's flying high. Dream scenario. But the reality of the situation now is about to come crashing down. And his dream day is about to turn into his worst nightmare. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, I love this word, hurry, okay? Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Look at this, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Leave out nothing. Wow, right? Oh, what I would give to be there right? To be there. There's a lot of places through the scripture, the narratives that I like to go and see. Of course, I'd love to go to the garden. I didn't see what happened there. I'd love to see the parting of the Red Sea. I'd love to go in the belly of the fish with Jonah. Just kind of check out what's going on there. You know, how do you really feel? What do you look like? I'd love to be here. Imagine being there, the look on Haman's face, right? The humiliation, the confusion, more than that, the terror, his despised enemy, who he was there to kill, was the very one that he must, there's no choice here, he must honor at the king's command. And so he does what he has to do. He does it. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. Can you imagine? He dresses Mordecai and leads him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, I had a a hard time, I'll be honest, I had a hard time knowing how to read this. Like, what actually happened? Like, does he, does Haman just, like, fake this and perform? Is he, like, genuinely putting on? Is he, like, shouting this out with excitement? Or is this like him mumbling, right, in in a mixture of disgust and depression? So is it like, you know, thus shall it be done to the man, right, whom the king delights to honor? Or is it like leading the horse, like, thus shall it be done to the man? We, We don't know. We don't know. But the irony, the irony of this whole situation either way is that, All along, don't miss it, all along, Mordecai refused. He would not bow down to Haman, and now Haman has to bow down to him. A lot of irony there. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried, see that word again, key words here. Haman hurried to his house, and notice what he does. Mourning and with his head covered. Sound familiar? At the news of the annihilation of all the Jews, Mordecai was the one mourning with his head covered. Now it's Haman. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, she comes back. And all his friends, they come back. Everything that had happened to him. Then his friends, his wise men, and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. So Haman shamefully goes home after trotting around Mordecai. And he is in need of some comfort. 
clearly. But what happens? He goes home and he just gets more disappointment. Because essentially, when his wife and his friends hear what happened, we see here, actually, they turn on him. There's more irony there. Just the night before, don't miss this, if you flip back to chapter 5, how chapter 5 ended, just the night before, these same individuals were the ones urging Haman to kill Mordecai. But now they're saying, oh, you have no chance. (laughs) You're going to fall before him. Their minds have changed. Their advice has changed. And to me, this is just highlighting the fickleness or I'll say the uselessness of worldly wisdom and popular opinion. You know, our life is full of popular opinion. But you know, it's fickle, it's useless. Why? Because it's always changing and it's always shifting. Popular opinion is always changing. And we see here, there is no more time for reflection. There's no more time for strategy. There's no, well, what are we going to do next? Do you think we can still get him on the gallows? Why? Because look at verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, they're having this discussion. What happens? The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried, is that word again, to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So can you imagine? He trots him around the city that morning. You know, hail to the sky. Look at what happens to those who honor the king. He's mourning. He's sad. There's probably tears. He goes home. He's like, hey, you know, it's his wife. I need some comfort, whatever. And she's like, you're a dead man. You know, like, all right. His best friends are like, oh, you're going to be great. We're going to be great with you. They're like, oh, sorry. Like, you're going to fall. And as they're having this conversation, and as he's trying to wrap his mind around everything that just happened, the hours before, the king's units show up, knock on the door, and like, let's go. You're going to be late. So he hurries out. And that's where the chapter ends. Right? Talk about an ancient cliffhanger, right? That's where it ends. Like if there was a TV, this is a TV series, it would end right there. And then Netflix would count down to 10, right? And you'd be like, should I watch it? Of course you would, right? It doesn't matter what time it is or you'd cancel mo- meetings, right? Just like me. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I would never do that. Um. <laughs> oh, man. It's not in my notes. That's why I don't, that's why I manuscript here. So I don't get myself in trouble. No. So we're just left hanging here. And so what are we to do with this? What do we do with chapter six? Well, let me tell you why this chapter is so important. Why it's so meaningful. See, as you study the book of Esther, It's a great story. It's a really good story. I think we can all agree on that. But what we're also seeing is that it is brilliant in its form and its layout and its structure. What we see in Esther is that really, if you want to break down this book, this this story is built around feasts. We'll call them dinner parties. Feasts. It's very important that you see this. Okay, Don't miss this. There are two feasts in chapter 1. And there are two feasts that take place in chapter 9, and we're going to see that later. Two feasts in the beginning of the book, two feasts at the end of the book. But then right in the middle of the story, right in the middle of the book, there are another two feasts. One in chapter 5 and one in chapter 6. 
So this whole story of Esther is built around these three pairs of feasts. Two feasts, two feasts, two feasts. And right in the middle of the two feasts in the middle, Esther's two feasts, in the very, very center of the book, there is a pivot point. There is a hinge. And that hinge takes place in chapter 6, verse 1, which again says this. On that night, the king could not sleep. It's the pivot point of the book. So that detail, that verse, it's really the center of the story. It's the hinge of Esther. And this is fascinating because understand this, like think of this. The pivot point isn't a climax moment, which is what we'd expect. There wasn't like the parting of the Red Sea, right? There's not a miracle. It just says the king couldn't sleep. It's just this seemingly insignificant detail to the story. One night, like any other night, the king can't sleep, which some of you had a sleepless night last night. That's not an unusual thing. One night, the king can't sleep. But as insignificant as it appears, we know that it's at this very moment in the story that things begin to change. That the great reversal of Esther begins. And so what is the author doing here? It's brilliant. Well, it's very intentional that the hinge of this story happens away from human action. There's no human action. It's a way of reinforcing the theme of this book, the theme of this story, which is again what? Seeing the unseen God. The hidden hand of God. It's God's providence. So isn't it appropriate that the pivot point of Esther is an ordinary event that highlights the hidden work of God? The most central verse, key verse of the whole story is, on a night a king can't sleep. See, God isn't mentioned, I've said this every week, he's not mentioned in this story, but his fingerprints are everywhere, especially in chapter 6. I mean, think about it this way. Think about it this way. It, it just so happens the king has a sleepless night between the two feasts. It just so happens it's the same night as Haman's plan. It just so happens the king has the chronicles read to him rather than any other form of entertainment he could have asked for. Like, how about some warm milk? No, I want the chronicles. It's like, give me the Excel spreadsheet. It just so happens. It just so happens all of the stories that are in those chronicles, of all the stories that get his attention, it's Mordecai's. Years of being a king, and that one stands out. It just so happens that Mordecai's loyalty was overlooked, unresolved for Five years, five years until this very night. I'm not done. It it just so happens that Haman arrives at the precise moment that the king is considering how to honor Mordecai. And it just so happens that Haman 
wanted to be exalted, honored, and praised, and he has to exalt and honor and praise Mordecai, his rival. Who could ever say, if you, if you go through this, who could ever say that all of this is just coincidence? Who? What, how arrogant would you have to be? Right? God's involvement is unavoidable, unavoidable here. Right? Again, it's his unseen hand at work. And that's just this chapter. That's just this chapter. Think about everything else that has happened so far. All of these seemingly unrelated details that are coming together, weaving together to shape the outcome of this story. So look, if, if you've read the Bible, right, you know, you know that our God is a God of miracles. Right? He, did, he does them often, actually, to, to deliver his people and to fulfill his promises. But in Esther, God is not operating that way. He's not. Instead, God is using the ordinary events of life to do the same. Right? He can use miracles. Of course he can. He's God. But he doesn't need to. He is powerful enough to use the ordinary circumstances of life like a sleepless night as well. So now I just want to take a, a moment, and we'll really spend the rest of our time talking about the providence of God, but I just want to take a few moments to let our hearts sink into God's providence. Uh, we touched on this topic just very briefly in week one, uh, but I want us to go a bit deeper. And so first, I just want to start by answering the question, what is the providence of God? What is God's providence? And this is important. It's, it's a very important topic in our faith or for our faith. And, and let me tell you why. Because, see, if we misunderstand or we misinterpret or misapply God's providence, we end up actually, we end up seeing God as powerful, yet being cruel. Or we see him as good, but powerless, one of the two. But rightly understood, there are few things that give more hope and courage to our souls than the providence of God. So what is it? What is it? There's a lot of different definitions that we could work off of here, but I'll say it this way. God's providence is the truth that God in his goodness and power preserves, directs, governs, and sustains all creatures, all actions, and all things for his glory and the joy of his people. That's as short as I can make it. It's God's providence. The truth that in his goodness and his power, he preserves, he directs, he governs, and he sustains all creatures, all actions, and all things for his glory and the joy of his people. Listen, that, what does that mean? It means from the largest star in the galaxy. Okay, stars that are thousands of times bigger than the earth that we live on to the very smallest sparrow in the sky. 
God is over and above it all. All of it. Acts 17.25 says this. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things together according to the counsel of his will. Or how about Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. And so we say that God preserves because he is actively sustaining and holding all things together. We say that he governs because we know that he directs all things for his good purposes to his pre-appointed ends. It means that God is the one that's uh, steering the ship of history and steering the ship of our lives, right? It'd be safe. Jesus, take the wheel. It's good, right? He can. He is, by the way. She didn't even need to sing that song. She's steering it to a certain... Paul just shook his head. He doesn't like that one. Sorry, we'll move on. Added that one out, Linda, at the end, right? He is the one steering the ship of history and our lives to a certain destination. Right? It's not chance, it means. There's no fate. There is no luck. There's no blind evolutionary forces. There is just God. There is God. He is directing all things. And that, of course, leads us to the reasonable question, the one that mm, probably 40% of you are thinking right now, the thinkers in the room. The first question when thinking of God's providence is, okay, then, what role does that play for me? What does that mean about my actions? If God is just directing all things, what about my actions? What role does that play? In this world, what about my choices? And I admit, I I admit, this is very difficult. It's very challenging to wrap our minds around this. In some ways, it's part of God's mystery. But this is what we know. That by God's providence, that he is actually working parallel to his creation. He's working parallel. So we are working and things are being done. And he is working alongside of his creation. Um, If you're really interested in this, like if you like theology and to study deeper, um, you can study this. It's called God's concurrence. Okay, It's a a part of his providence. God's concurrence, for those of you who want to study more in depth. But all this means is this, that God can work. He can work outside of the normal bounds of creation. Again, we call that miracles. But more often, he works in and through the boundaries of creation, and that includes in and through us, his people. You might say it this way. He is the primary cause as he works through secondary causes, like people, like the weather, like life's circumstances. Even through evil, he works. And so when it comes to our lives, here's what we need to do. We have to hold these two truths together, actually. That God is absolutely sovereign. He is above all things, governing and sustaining all things. 
And yet his sovereignty never minimizes or mitigates, takes away our human responsibility. Those two things are taking place at the same time. God is at work, meaning he is the great director of this story that we're all living in. But we have responsibility. Like we have hands and feet and minds that act and should act. And the Bible upholds these two truths at the very same time. And so we should do the same. As Proverbs 16.9 says, I think this verse captures this really well. It says this, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. See, both are working together. The heart of man plans his way. We have responsibility, but the Lord is above it all, establishing the heart or the steps of man. And this is what we've seen in Esther. We've seen this very clearly throughout Esther, God's providence. Esther and Mordecai, they have their plans, right? They even pray. They even fast, right? So that they have the best plan. They take action, but over it all, God was there establishing their steps. God is at work in, through, and around them. And listen, that tells us that he is at work in, through, and around us as well. So listen, understanding God's providence, it really genuinely helps us to make sense of our lives. It gives our stories meaning. It gives our stories purpose. I mean, think about it. Go through this, maybe even after the service. Uh, maybe tonight, think about this. Where you were born, the family that you were born into, uh, the opportunities that you've had come up in your life, the opportunities that you haven't had, the circumstances that led you to your school, the circumstances that led you to your job, the trials that you've gone through, your troubles, your heartaches, All the unforeseen events, being at the wrong place at the right time, sometimes being at the right place at the right time. God's providence tells us that nothing was just random chance or blind luck. No, that he was at work in it all, that he is above and over it all, even when we don't see it. And when we grasp that, when we understand that, it changes not only how we see our world, but also how we see our own lives. And so let me give you a few ways that the providence of God changes our lives. Just three, and they're going to be the quickest three points I've probably ever done. Number one, number one, God's providence helps us to patiently trust him. God's providence helps us to patiently trust him, by the way, especially when we're facing trial, tribulation, and trouble. See, if we know, if we know that God is at work and that God is working for our good, then we can wait on him with patient trust, knowing that he hasn't forgotten us. So far from forgetting us, we know that he has ordained everything in the universe for us in order to highlight his unsearchable riches and glory. And so when we face injustice, when we face a difficult 
circumstance, when our prayers uh, go unanswered, maybe for years, we know and trust that God is still at work and that he will provide for his people as he sees best in his good and perfect timing. As Habakkuk 2.3 says, if it seems slow, promises of God, if it seems slow, wait for it. Simple verse, I love it. If it seems slow, if it seems to have a delay, if you've, seen, if you've been waiting in a long season, what should you do? Wait for it. Wait for it. As God's providence, right, it, it fills our hearts. It helps us to be patient and to wait as we trust him. Number two, God's providence makes us grateful. You can say thankful there too. God's providence makes us grateful in our circumstances. See, whether it's, got to get this, okay? Whether it's prosperity or poverty. Prosperity or poverty. Don't miss that. Happy times or sad times. We know God has ordained things for the good of those who love him. And so we can be thankful that God has seen to it to place us in the situation that we are in right now, no matter what the situation is. It's not an accident. It's not an accident where you are. Yeah, your choices matter, and some of us are in bad places because we've made bad choices, but over and above it all, there's no coincidences. There's no accidents. And I know, I know this, right? Even when I read this, I wrote this down. I know in the world's eyes, this is foolish thinking. It's as countercultural as it comes in our world. It's counterculture in a lot of churches, by the way, for me to preach to you that whether it's prosperity or poverty, God's in it. But as followers of Jesus, it makes perfect sense. Right? I am grateful always because I, am, I know I am seen by the Lord and where he has me right now. Again, it's not an accident. It's all part of his glorious plan for my life. I might not understand why. It might be impossibly hard at times, but I am thankful, grateful, because I know that he is with me and that he is at work in me and through me and around me. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances, not just the good times, not just in the times of blessing, not just in the times of prosperity, Give thanks in all circumstances. And why? How could he say that? Well, because we know that God is present and at work in all circumstances. If he's at work, then I can be thankful. I can be patient and I can trust him. And then number three, God's providence leads us to an unbreakable hope. It leads us to an unbreakable hope. See, as followers of Jesus, uh, we have a hope that no one else in the world has. No one else in the world has our hope. Because we have been given a promise 
that no one else in the world has. Namely, that God is at work in our lives, that he has a plan for you, that he has a purpose for you and I, and that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And as those realities go from head knowledge to deep, heartfelt trust, that gives us unshakable confidence, real strength, and genuine hope amidst a world that oftentimes seems so hopeless. Right? God's faithfulness, his providence, his promises leads us to hope. That's why Hebrews 10.23 says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So do you see how important it is to believe and understand God's providence? It gives our lives something solid to grasp. It gives our lives something to be rooted in each and every day. So let me, let me close with this. The providential pivot point of Esther is this. A night, one night, where a king couldn't sleep. At a seemingly insignificant moment, we see and will see that a great reversal begins. The tides begin to change. They transform by the hand of God. Listen, in God's mysterious providence, King Ahasuerus just so happened to not be able to sleep. And less than 500 years later, after Esther's story, in God's mysterious providence, it just so happened that a baby was born to a, to a teenager, quietly, ordinary, in a manger. And it just so happened that this baby grew up to be a Jewish rabbi, a, a teacher, but also a miracle worker. It just so happened that everywhere this man went, everywhere, things got better. The deaf could hear, the blind could see, the lame could walk. It just so happened that the Jewish elites, even the Roman elites, they were threatened by this man. And so it just so happens that they conspired together to kill him. And it just so happened that he was murdered on a Roman cross. And it just so happened that three days later, he rose from the grave. Apart from what everyone expected, hopeless, God's silence. Apart from appearances, he just looked like a lowly human man. It just so happened that this man came to seek and save the lost. And it just so happened that every single one of us was in need of saving and was lost. See, the ultimate pivot point of human history was not a great war. It wasn't the election of a famous leader. It wasn't the appointment of a new, great, uh, charismatic king. The pivot point of history was a brutal moment 
a silent moment on a wooden cross, completely unexpected, completely hidden, because that's just often how God works and moves. When we were separated from God by our sin, the story pivoted on the cross, and Jesus reconciled us back to God. When we were considered enemies of God, the story pivoted on the cross and he came to adopt us as sons and daughters. When there was no hope, no way for peace for you and I, when we were without God in the world, the story pivoted on the cross so that we could secure hope and joy with him. See, it's the cross at the cross, where we see the ordinary, the miraculous, and the providential hand of God all coming together in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's just simply staggering. And added to that, it's just amazing. If we put our trust, if we put our hope in him, in Jesus we actually get treated like spiritual Mordecais. Treated like royalty. Treated like heirs to the throne, to the king. Follow me here. We get clothed in Jesus' robes of righteousness. We get honored by God himself. A new name, a new identity. Walking around as ambassadors to the king. And written, not only that, we are now written in his book of Chronicles, his book of redemption, which the Bible calls the book of life that we can never be removed from. So in Christ, we can be assured that our life has meaning and our destiny is with Christ. The cross secures it, and God's providence ensures it. Whether we see it or not, God is guiding us home. He's taking us home. So let's be patient. Let's be grateful, and let's have hope. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says this. We'll close with this. I want us to meditate on this verse, on this truth today. Listen to these words. This is God speaking of himself. says this, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. That is our God, friends. What a big, mighty, powerful God we serve. Let me pray for you.